This morning, we're going to continue through our series uh, in the book of Matthew. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, what a privilege to be here this morning, and now, Lord, we ask for ears to hear and for eyes to see who you are and what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to understand this passage, Lord. Help us believe it, trust it, apply it, obey it. Let your word, Lord, let obedience to your word in our lives be like laying a foundation on the rock so that we might not be shaken or swept away by what life brings our way. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And uh, we're talking about the ministry of Jesus, and this is a uh, in this passage after... Uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Um, there's a few little stories here about the... the basically, I, I kind of see it as a general overview of Jesus' ministry. And, um, and one of the things he does is he uh, calls some of his first disciples. And uh, disciple-making is going to be one of the points of this sermon this morning. And I was reading a book recently called Spiritual Multiplication... In the real world, and I, I, I took some quotes from that book. And as I was thinking about this, I just wanted to share with you some quotes from this book that I found especially helpful. Um, uh, for example, this first quote here says, "Don't disqualify yourself." Talking about making disciples, sharing the gospel. For example, leading our ones to Christ and sharing Christ with other people. He says, "Don't disqualify yourself in your mind from a work." For which Jesus died to qualify you. How greatly, listen to this, how greatly God multiplies his children through you depends more on who he is than who you are. In other words, so often when we think about, you know, serving God and, you know, the privilege that it is to serve God, but we get intimidated because we focus on us, but we forget that it's way more about God than it is about us. And in fact, the fruit that our lives will bear and the effect that our lives will have is, depends, is a lot more about God and less about us. In other words, God, in fact, it oftentimes pleases God to use the person who may be most insignificant in our eyes to do the most good. Because it's not about the person. It's about the God working through the person. How about this one? It says, what are you asking God to do with your life? If it's not intimidating to you, it's probably insulting to God. You know, God's a big God. You know, if we're not asking him to do big things, then what does that say about our faith in him? You know? It, it, it may betray a subtle belief that maybe we don't really think he could do any more with us. 
Why not ask for God to do something, ask God to do something with your life that would be humanly impossible so that God could get the glory for it? How about this one? I thought this was good. He did a study about effective disciple makers, people who are effective disciple makers, and this is what he said. We found no statistically significant relationship between where one lives and his effectiveness in disciple making. So you can't say, oh, it's just, it's hard around here. It's not any harder here than it is anywhere else. In fact, I don't have a quote on this, but one of the main points of the book is actually incredibly simple. You know, the people who had the most fruitfulness in their evangelistic efforts, you know who they were? The ones who shared the gospel the most. It was that simple. It was that simple. It really is that simple. The more you share it, the more people will believe. It really is that simple. And how about this one? I thought this was encouraging. He says, if a 22-year-old will make disciples at a rate of leading two people to Christ every three years, okay? Two people to Christ every three years. That's one and a half years, okay? That's, you know, that's not unreasonable, okay? Leading two people to Christ every three years, and those disciples then doing the same after they've been reached, okay? If, they, if a person did that beginning when they're 22 years old, by the time they're 78, that person will have impacted 22,619,537 people. You say, Pastor, I'm not 22. Hey, just get started. Just get started, and who knows how many lives God will allow you to impact with the time that you have. And so those are some things I want to think about as we talk about this morning, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see this in Matthew chapter 4. And so now if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Verse 12. It says, Now when he heard, that's Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases, pains and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The word of God. You may be seated. So I want to draw out three uh, um, things from our passage this morning. Number one, we're going to talk about the message of Jesus' ministry. The message of Jesus' ministry. Number two, we're going to talk about the method of Jesus' ministry. The method of Jesus' ministry. And number three, we're going to talk about the mode of Jesus' ministry. The mode of Jesus' ministry. So first, number one, the message of Jesus' ministry. So <coughs> just a review. Jesus, so last week we talked about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And Jesus' defeat of Satan's temptations uh, in tandem with his 40 days of fasting and seeking the Lord, being sustained by the power of God and his word alone, which, by the way, he resisted all the temptations by quoting the scriptures. So God's word is what sustains us and empowers us to fight temptation. All these things, what they do is they give us an anticipation then of the power and the victory that Jesus will have in his ministry. Okay? And we talked about last time that Jesus is the greater Adam. He endured temptation in the wilderness and remained faithful, believing God and not succumbing to the temptation of the devil who said, did God really say? Isn't that interesting? Did God really say that was the temptation? And what is Jesus, how does Jesus rebuke the devil in the wilderness? By saying, by quoting to him what God said. Okay? Jesus conquered in the desert, securing Eden for us rather than being exiled from it like Adam was. And we talked about how Jesus is the true Israel who conquered in the wilderness testing without grumbling or complaining who was faithful and thus received the promised land as his inheritance. And he dug his heel into Satan's head, and now we're ready to see what that will look like in Jesus' public ministry. Matthew presents Jesus' ministry as formally beginning with the imprisonment of John the Baptist. John had fulfilled his role as forerunner of the Messiah. He had done what was prophesied of him. He had made straight the paths to Jesus Christ. He had prepared the people's hearts by proclaiming a message of repentance, preparing their hearts to receive the Lord. And now, in prison, his ministry has, has come to an end. And as we know, he would die in ministry and would, would not get to see the fruit of Christ's own ministry. He sees it now. But he didn't get to see it in his earthly life. But John knew that this would happen. This is what he said in John chapter 3. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The time that John had been destined for was fulfilled, and now the Messiah had come. And so we now see the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry centers around Galilee. Let's show that picture. So uh, apparently Jesus first goes to uh, the city of Nazareth, which you, you probably can't 
see that it's in red there, almost the center of the picture is the city of Nazareth. This is Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. So actually below that, off the map, south of that is where Jerusalem and everything is. So this is the northern part of the nation of Israel. And Galilee is in the northern part there of Israel. And that's where Jesus does, that's where most of his recorded ministry is, is in the region of Galilee. And so he first goes to Nazareth, but then he plants himself more or less in the city of Capernaum as his home base of the Galilean ministry. And Capernaum there is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, So that's where Capernaum is. You can you can go there today. I've been there. It's fascinating. Okay, So this move, however, is not just practical or strategic. Matthew says that this move is a fulfillment of Scripture, that Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry centered around the city of Capernaum is a fulfillment of what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And we can read those verses straight from the Old Testament here. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. If you go back and read the, the passage in Isaiah, the context of that passage is the Assyrian invasion. Okay, So remember that when Israel entered into the promised land, each tribe received an inheritance, right? a portion of the land that would, be there, that would belong to their tribes forever. Okay? So each land received an inheritance. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali, their allotted portion of the, their inheritance was in what, what they refer to as Galilee there. It's, it's the northern part of Israel. That was part of their inheritance. Okay? And so that's the region that we're talking about, the northern part of Israel. And, and note here that uh, the, the nation of Israel is, is basically a, a land bridge. Can we put that picture back up? It's basically a land bridge. Okay? We have the, the, we have the, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and then on the other side of the Jordan is just desert. Right? So if you're going to invade Israel, which happened all the time, there was only one way you were going to do it. You're going to go straight down through the top. Okay? So guess what part of Israel always got attacked first? <laughs> the northern part, the top part. Assyria, Assyria was north of Israel. Okay? So in the context of Isaiah 9, it's talking about the Assyrian invasion. And it's talking about how when Assyria came, and they, they destroyed the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel, after the reigns of David and Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two different kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Assyria came, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and, 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 and exiled them in 722 B.C. Okay, And so that's clearly what it's talking about in Isaiah 9-1 when it says, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They, it was a contempted land. It was a land in contempt. Why? It was a land conquered by the Assyrians. A land destroyed. A land uh, exi- in exile, if you will. Okay? But even in view of that, in Isaiah 9, Isaiah is prophesying what? That the land that was once held in contempt, what's going to happen to that land? It's going to see a great light one day. You see that? 
It's going to see a great light one day. And by the way, we can't miss the weight of this. this the, the quote is from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In that same passage, we get a clue about what the great light, the region of Galilee, is. In four verses later, in Isaiah 9, 6, you know what Isaiah 9, 6 says? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. A light has shone in the darkness. The light of God Almighty, the light of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, entered into the world and fulfilled the majority of his public ministry. Not, think about it, if the Jews would probably expect what? That if the Messiah came, he would show up where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, where all the important people were, where all the religious leaders were. But where does the light dawn? In Galilee, in the darkness, where of all places where Gentiles live too. That's where the light dawns. This, I believe, prefigures Jesus' message where he says that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Are you 100% spiritually whole this morning? Congratulations, you don't need Jesus. And in fact, I should probably sit down so you could come preach the message. Are you spiritually sick in any way this morning? Congratulations, light from heaven has dawned for you. Christ has come to shine in your darkness. And this is the message that he proclaimed. And it's the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I preached a whole sermon on that. You can go back and, and look at that. But his message is the same as John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in to this world. This sinful world order, God's kingdom is breaking in. The kingdom of heaven is about to break through, is about to conquer, forgiving sin, defeating death, pouring out his spirit, ascending into heaven, building his kingdom on, his, on this earth through spirit-filled disciples till he returns to finish what he started. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus says... If you don't repent, you won't be ready. How? There's only one way to receive a king on your knees. We have to turn from ourselves. That's what repent means. We turn from ourselves to do what? Bow our hearts to King Jesus. So where we no longer rule our lives, but we let Christ take his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. That's how you make ready for the king. You wave the white flag of surrender, turning from your sin and trusting in him. A better king than you, a wiser king, a smarter king, a truer king, 
a gracious and merciful king, such that if you bow your heart to him, he will freely forgive you of all your rebellion in your life and welcome you into his kingdom. And get this, he'll give you a seat at his table and we shall reign with him forever and ever. And this is the kingdom of God, and it is infiltrating the world to this very day. It's breaking through wherever people turn from their sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. There Christ is reigning. There his kingdom is growing. And the Bible says his kingdom will spread through the whole earth till there are believers and praisers of the name of Jesus Christ of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We gather in this room this morning praising God, and sometimes we just forget that there are people in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in Europe, this very morning praising the same God we praise. And so we're just a small, tiny part of what God is doing in this world. God, the, the branches of God's kingdom is like a tree, and they're covering over all the earth. Wherever hearts are bowing to him. And guess what? It will spread throughout all the earth and the gospel will continue to be proclaimed to every nation. But God has an appointed day. And I would say he probably has, he has an appointed person who will be the last person to believe the gospel. And then the end will come. But see... The terms of peace have already been proclaimed by what? His ambassadors, by you, by me. That's the terms of peace. Make ready. Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make yourself ready. Because when he shows up, it's too late. It's too late. You can't rebel and rebel and rebel against the king right until the point that he shows up and say, whoops, That's not how it works. He's a good king. He's a gracious king. He's a forgiving king. And he's a coming king. Repent. Repent. Don't be found a rebel when Christ comes. It's not worth it. It's not worth it then. It's not even worth it now. The greatest plans you could possibly conceive for your life are nothing compared to what God has for you. So just surrender. Trust. Believe. Surrender your life. Own him as king, and he will own you as his when he returns. Number one, the message of Jesus. Number two, the method of Jesus' ministry. The method of Jesus' ministry. We see this in 18, verse 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So from very early in his ministry, we see that Jesus' method was that he gathered disciples about him. Now, this wasn't unusual because... Rabbis during that day, that was the, the practice. They would have disciples. In fact, Jesus had debates with them because they would ask him about his disciples. Why do your disciples do that? Because his disciples do this and their disciples do this. Okay? That was, a, that was a practice. Okay? It was a way that rab, what rabbis would use to pass on their teaching and influence to further generations. But, of course, something was different than Jesus' discipleship, as some people have noted. And that is a typical practice of becoming uh, somebody's disciples was 
if you wanted to become somebody's disciples, then oftentimes you would go to them and you would sit at their feet and you would have to subject yourself to a, a, a severe questioning from them for them to test you to see whether you were worthy to be their disciple. You see, Jesus is a little bit, it's a little bit different than that. Jesus flips that on his head. Rather than his disciples initially pursuing him, he's the one who pursues his disciples. He goes to them. He finds them and says, you follow me. And by the way, from human perception, Jesus chose those who did not at first glance, first glance would seem to be the varsity A-team crew for theological vocation. Nevertheless, in John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, get this, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Think about that. That's amazing. Think of how encouraging. If, you, if that was you, think about what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you didn't... This is how sure and how much confidence you can have in, your, in God's work in you. You didn't even choose him. He chose you. And guess what? Not only that, but he's appointed. Appointed, that means guaranteed will happen. That what will happen? That you will bear fruit and that your fruit will abide. What is that? It's a guarantee from God Almighty that your life will make an eternal difference in the world and nothing can stop it. That's amazing. So when these brothers were called, they didn't even know how great a thing that was happening to them at the time. All they knew was that something is different about this man. And they followed him, and they chose to follow him no matter what. And what did Jesus tell them? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They fished for fish. But Jesus is going to one-up them. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. And what they do? They left everything. They followed Jesus. And what did they do? They fished for men. That's what they did. This is Jesus' method. This is Jesus' method. They went. And they proclaimed the gospel to Jew and to Gentile. And not everyone believed, but many did. Because when they preached the, the message, then what? The Spirit of God worked in people's hearts. And many people believed. So wherever they went and wherever they preached the gospel, people got saved. This was, this was Jesus' plan. You ever thought about that? The future of Jesus' ministry after his death and resurrections largely hinged on a handful of men. That's incredible, isn't it? That in that Jesus's that in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, the message that they proclaimed in Jesus's power, as they did that, Jesus stretched out His hand and saved people and awakened people from death to life. And then those people went and shared the gospel with other people. Until two thousand years later, we sit in Eastman, Georgia, thousands of miles away, worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? Because men are Jesus's method. People are Jesus's method. Jesus' method is to do what? To invest in the few to reach the many. That's what Jesus did. That's fascinating, isn't it? When Jesus, 
You know, Jesus, um, he, didn't, he didn't start a megachurch. You know that? When he died, the Bible says he had about 120 followers. That's it. You would think, man, I thought I figured Jesus could do a little better than that. But what did, what did he do? Well, those 12, those, those 12 and, and, and the few others scattered around, what did they do? They believed him. And they waited in a room and they prayed until the Holy Spirit of God Almighty came down upon them. And then Peter stood up in Jerusalem, preached the gospel in the same city where they crucified his Savior, and 2,000 people got saved. Why? Because it depends on God and not on us. We just deliver the message. That is God's method. People are God's method. We are God's method. And so despite the huge crowds that followed him during his ministry, his, his whole, the whole future of, his, <laughs> of the kingdom of God was just entrusted to a handful of people, which is astounding to me. But guess what? Those, they changed the world. They changed the world. Why? Because they made disciple-making disciples. In fact, that, I think that phrase needs to become embedded in our hearts as a church and individually. I need to be about the business of making disciple-making disciples. Making disciple-making disciples. That's how it works, right? When you make disciples, that's addition. When you make disciple-making disciples, that's multiplication. You see? If the gospel comes to me and I believe, that's wonderful. Praise God. But if I don't make any disciples, then what? The gospel has terminated with me. That's it. It got to me and then that's it. No more. I just don't think we can be content with that. Rather, the gospel should fill us because it's more than enough to do so, to fill us to overflowing so that it's then flowing through us into the lives of other people. And then, and so then, by God's power, because we just proclaim the message and God saves, by God's power, people will get saved, and then we will disciple those people, and, but we can't stop there either, because then we need to see our disciples making disciples. And when we see our disciples making disciples, what happens? Then... God takes over. Then God does what? He takes the gospel to Africa, to Asia, to uh, South America, to America. 2,000 years later, where we believe the gospel only because what? Because disciples made disciples. That's the only reason anybody in this room is saved today is because people in past generations said, I must tell somebody else. The church is ever only one generation from extinction, if it were possible. Because we have to pass it on. But that's the, that's the glory of it, and that's why I love that quote. That I said in the beginning, how greatly God multiplies his children through you depends more on who he is than who you are. And so because then 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, we can make disciples, right? The, the, you know, the apostles, you know, they were men. They were, just, they were just people. But they had the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. And they believed that if I just preach the gospel, people will get saved. And they did. And that's why, for example, our ones, that's why they're so important. It just starts, just one. It starts with one. That's why I'm pleading with everyone. If you don't have a one, why? I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to save you the embarrassment of standing before Jesus one day, and he's going to ask you, why didn't you even try? I would spare you that. One person. Ask God to give you one person. God, save this one person and use me to do it. That's Christ's method. Not them over there, not them over there. We need to start owning this. I'm Christ's method. I'm Christ's method. One disciple at a time. One person at a time. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Then the Bible says you're a fisher of men. It's not you should be a fisherman. The Bible says you are a fisherman. Now just be it. Let's go fishing. The message of Jesus' ministry, the method of Jesus' ministry. Number three, the mode of Jesus' ministry. Verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so we see here, I believe, an overview of Jesus' ministry that consisted of three things, uh, Quickly here. Number one is that Jesus, one of the primary aspects of his ministry was he, he taught. He taught. That's what it says. Jesus was a, the, the teacher par excellence, the greatest teacher who ever lived. And um, if you look at even in that same little passage there, you know, the, what amazed people was, uh, was his miracles. And, th- and that's the temptation sometimes, is that sometimes we can be so enamored with Jesus' miraculous power that we miss his plain teaching. And that, that happened to a lot of people in Jesus' day. At the same time, Jesus' teaching did amaze many people as well. He, he didn't teach like the Pharisees. He didn't teach like the scribes. He didn't say, well, so-and-so says this, and then this person over here says this, and quote other rabbis like was common in that day. In fact, Jesus flipped that on his head. He said, well, you've heard so-and-so say this, but I tell you, What is that? Authority. Divine authority from God to tell us the truth. To tell us the truth. In fact, we're right here. We're about next week. We're going to break into the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the greatest sermon ever preached. Let me tell you something. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it will shock us and humble us and awe us and encourage us and rebuke us and do all kinds of wonderful things in our hearts if we'll let it. Because it's about what? 
It's about how we live as who? As kingdom people. Those who belong to the king. So he taught, and number two, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed, as we talked about, that the kingdom was breaking into the world. That God is fulfilling his, all the promises of the Old Testament. He is providing a king. He is restoring the world back to the way it was meant to be. That is, in, in, back into total submission to God, who is the king. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And his kingdom spreads through, not through coercive political power like most kings or rulers today. His kingdom spreads through repentance and faith. Jesus' rule is not first political or geographical. It is spiritual. It is heavenly. It's the good news that there is only one kingdom that ultimately matters, and that kingdom can be accessed by anybody of any kingdom. If you will, turn to Jesus. Believe in him, trust in him, follow him, yield your life to him. And then finally, Jesus healed every disease and affliction. This was the primary reason for his great fame that it says, and uh, even in Syria, which that could, even, that could mean that he was even famous outside of Israel there. And so what the Bible says is that, and so how, what does this tell us about Christ's kingdom? Well, the Bible says that sicknesses and disease, and ultimately, as we know, death is a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. In the day that you do it, disobey, sin, eat of the fruit of the knowledge of, tree of good and evil, you will surely die. Sin brings death. And, and by, by extension, everything that causes death, disease, sickness, ailments, bro- physical brokenness, not just spiritual brokenness, but also physical brokenness is a result of sin. So by Jesus coming in and doing what? By healing diseases, by raising the dead, what is he saying? He's saying that he's dealing with sin and its effects. Where sin is ultimately forgiven, there can be no ultimate death. Which is why, if our sins are forgiven in Jesus, the Bible says, we will be raised from the dead in glorified bodies, never to die again. That's the biblical teaching, right? And so, by by coming in and by banishing death and by healing all kinds of diseases, Jesus is proving that he is who he says he is. That he is the forgiver of sins. That he is the restorer, that he's undoing sin and its effects in the world. That the kingdom of God is breaking in. And this is also evidenced, of course, by his casting out of demons. Jesus was showing that somebody greater than Satan has showed up. And he's about to give him the boot. The kingdom is breaking through. The kingdom is at hand. It's coming, and it's also already here. It's in you, Jesus said. (laughs) If you know him, if you love him, if you eagerly wait for him, believe in him, trust him, and obey him. This is Jesus' message. So let us repent because it's near. If you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ, today's the day. Don't wait any longer. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to have a time of invitation. Listen, don't, worry, don't, don't give second thought to what other people are going to think about you. If you need to get right with Jesus Christ, 
you come and we'll praise God with you. If you need to get right with Jesus Christ, if there's some sin that you need to confess, come confess it. Whatever you need to do with God, let's do it. Why? Because it's at hand. There's no more time to waste. We've already wasted enough time. I have, haven't you? He's forgiving sin. He's conquering his enemies. He's making ready. We, we, we have the privilege of spreading his gospel through the, through the proclamation of it, through our ones. The time is short. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's already breaking through. So let's be ready for it when it comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today.